go ahead and have a seat. I'm just going to read some words of scripture. I just want you to close your eyes and think about uh, the kind of God that we serve. Um, you know, that line in the last one that he is the defender of the weak. And you know, all of us all the time do not always feel very strong, right? We need a God who is the defender of the weak. And Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I just want you to take a few moments um, just to bow your heads and pray as we begin this song and then join in singing um, that, you know, just acknowledgement to God uh, that we truly do need him. Uh, we can't do this life on our own. thing that I want to call your attention to is some of you know New Selma, Edinger, and Selma passed away this last week, and there will be a funeral this coming Saturday, so that will be on the 14th, and the funeral will be at the Hamilton Funeral Home on Westtown Parkway. So that's the, it'll be the visitation's at 10, and the funeral's at 11, okay? So the visitation is at 10, and the funeral is at 11 o'clock, so if you would... Uh, Make note of that. We'd sure appreciate it if you could uh, support her and her family, be in prayer for them as they mourn the loss of uh, Selma. Okay, good to have you with us this morning, worshiping online or in person. We're grateful for your presence. If you're here as a guest for the very first time, if you have a bulletin that will be on the welcome table, uh, they have, we have an extra flap there if you'd fill that out and uh, drop it in the offering box, which is also on the welcome table. We sure would appreciate that. And if you're online, we know that's not possible, so we're just glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, today is Mission Sunday, so our mission uh, offering is taken up today, so please designate your offering for missions on your memo line if you're giving it just directly to our, our mission support. Okay, let's pray. Father, we, we do need you every hour of every day, and I confess that too often I forget that and try to live in my own flesh and my own power and I pray for each of us that you would give us a greater conscious awareness of our dependence on you that we would seek to live our lives in submission to you your word and your will and I pray that as we go through these next few moments looking at your word that your spirit would speak to my heart You'd speak to our hearts, that you take the things that come out of my mouth and use them for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, that you'd use them to challenge us and to change us. We pray that your word would be seen for what it is, the word of God and not as the word of men. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Don't answer this out loud, please. But what is an attitude that marks success or greatness in the world that makes success or greatness in the kingdom impossible? What attitude marks greatness in the world that makes greatness in the kingdom impossible? Now, there could be many, but I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular, and there is one of the most praised attitudes in the world is the most problematic when it comes to the kingdom of God and how we relate to each other in the family of God. And that attitude, I think, is pride. And pride particularly as it manifests itself in selfish ambition, as it manifests itself in self-promotion, as it manifests itself in selfish or self-exaltation. Uh, self it's seeking to be first. And the last few weeks we've been talking about seeking the first is last, the last is first, the last is first, and the first is last. And Jesus is continuing on in this vein in Matthew chapter 20. And what we see here is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, 
Jesus follows his warning, which he had just given. He'd just given this warning to those who were jealous because he had been generous. Jealous about others coming into the kingdom because he had been generous to them. And he follows up this warning with a prescription for abolishing selfish ambition, which is a secret to greatness in the kingdom, this elimination of selfish ambition. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to continue on in the text in verses 17 through 28. And in this section, there are three ways that we learn how to achieve greatness in God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves on the way, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink but to sit on the right, on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the, the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first section here in verses 17 through 19, there are two insights that Jesus gives us from his example that reveal the great, what greatness of the kingdom consists of. We see and first of all learn from his example, okay? The example of Jesus. And there, there are two things that he does, two insights that we gain that help us see what is this greatness in the kingdom. And the first is the agony of Jesus. So they're getting ready, just nearing the end of Jesus' life, okay? And so he's getting ready to take the disciples up from Jericho up to Jerusalem, okay? So they're about to go ascend up to Jerusalem, and he calls a little powwow, okay? I don't know how many of you have been in the hospital, uh, not recently, but uh, you know, in the past, you know, when, when surgery's done, the, the doctor calls you into the consultation room, okay? And it, it's only the family that gets in there or, you know, related to the family. I've been privileged to be in there many times because I'm a pastor, but you get in there and it's just for the close people. So Jesus, if you will, calls his disciples into the consultation room and he says, I have something important I want to say to you. And so he begins to share with them what's going on. Mark's gospel in the parallel passage says he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Yeah, well, he did. Verses 18 and 19, he tells them what's going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem, and when we get to Jerusalem, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer, and then I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again the third day. He said, or he didn't say third, I'm going to rise again. This is what's going to happen. This is the third time Jesus has predicted his passion. The first time was back in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. And then in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he'd said the same thing. This is absolutely contrary to what their expectation was for Jesus. Okay? What they were expecting was that they'd go up to Jerusalem and uh, that, that he would be crowned and inaugurated. It wasn't what Jesus said. No, what's happening is suffering and crucifixion, not celebration and coronation. It's the opposite of what they had expected, the opposite of what they anticipated. But the remarkable thing is Jesus lays it out for him third time. This was his plan. Jerusalem was Jesus' destination as part of 
the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. It was what God had destined him for when he came to this earth. In Luke chapter 24, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, was it not written that the Son of Man must go up and suffer and die? No, it's a paraphrase, it's not exact, okay? We see from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that it was according to the Scriptures, Jesus lays out for them the gospel. This is the gospel which I have delivered unto you, that which I also received, that the Lord Jesus, well, he, he, had to be, he was crucified in, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. Okay? This was his plan. He was headed for it. So Jesus would experience suffering, suffering at the hands, first of all, of the Jewish leaders, and second of all, at the hands of the Gentiles. In the text in verses 17 and 18, it says, And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves on the way, and he said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Son of man, interesting term, we've seen it before. His favorite self-designation, but drawing from the picture that we have painted for us in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that this son of man indicates that he applies it to himself, indicates that he's saying, that's me, back in Daniel. Indicating that he is the divine son of man, that he was the one who was to come gloriously to reign for eternity on this throne, testifying to his divinity, that he would be the one to expected to rule he was expected not to serve he was here to live eternally not to die but what had he just said <laughs> i'm going to go up i'm going to suffer i'm going to die and i'm going to rise again the third day he will be delivered over judas okay there you go there it is he's going to be delivered over to the jewish priest this is from Judas, okay? Betrayed into the hands of the priests. These are the permanent and prestigious and prominent religious leaders who were also his arch enemies by this point for Jesus. He'd be delivered over into their hands. And the text says they would condemn him. They would condemn him who knew no sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5? He made him who knew no sin. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So they would condemn him who knew no sin, the sinless Son of God. They would condemn him to death. And I don't know how you read this, but it's really twisted. Uh, the, the religious leaders were forbidden by the law to execute anybody. They couldn't cause anyone, you know, couldn't execute, couldn't put a death sentence on him. So, in order to keep the law, they handed him over to the Gentiles. And they said, we want the Gentiles to do our dirty work for us. Okay? So the Gentiles were the ones who were delivered to give him. And so they were to carry out his, their dastardly deeds. And so he suffered at the hands of the Jews, but then he suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. And the text goes on to say in verse 18, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. I'm always struck in Scripture, not always, but oftentimes struck in Scripture by how just words, you know, just one word, to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. But do we stop to think about what that means? To mock. The Son of God. God's Son. Made fun of. Ridiculed. And to scourge. To physically beat to within a hair's breadth of death, and then to crucify, which you know the word crucify. But what does the word crucify mean? It means the most humiliating and excruciating form of execution that the Romans could implement on anyone. Yeah, so to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. He would suffer. He, he chose it. This is what, he chose the trail of torture. This was what he was destined to do from the time he arrived on planet earth. He chose it. He knowingly and willingly and lovingly 
went to the cross and embraced the pain of betrayal, the physical agony, the spiritual isolation from his father, the personal humiliation by people, ultimately his crucifixion. He said, I'll do it. I mean, I think about myself, and I think, I don't even like to confront people. You know, I, I don't even like to say, you know, I think what you did was wrong. Usually, uh, if I do enjoy it, then it's probably more my problem than their problem. But it's like, I don't really like it. And so here Jesus is embracing the cross. The Son of God, the sinless Son of God is walking towards Jerusalem intentionally. There's no pain in my life that I can endure that is greater than what Christ has endured for me. In fact, there is no pain because I'm not going to die for, I'm not, gonna, I'm not a sinless person who's going to die for anybody. I may die for somebody, but I'm not sinless and I'm not covering their sin. I'm not taking upon me what should be their problem. But here's the text. Jesus intentionally died for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 6, or 5, verses 6 through 9, uh, we, we see it played out. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the, a good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We, he died for us who are sinners so that we'd be justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God that we deserved. This is, this is the remarkable thing. All mankind stands guilty and condemned before God, but Christ's death made a way for us to be at peace with God. Christ died for us. He died in our place, taking the wrath of God we deserve upon himself so that all who trust in him would be justified, declared righteous before God, even though we're not in and of ourselves. But Christ's death alone didn't accomplish our redemption. What do I mean? Well, he didn't say he was just going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die. He said he would go suffer and die and rise again. You see, there is this victory. Suffering from the Jews, suffering from the Gentiles, but there is not just agony that Jesus demonstrates for us what it means to be great in the kingdom, but there is the victory that he achieved. He was raised on the third day. Okay, that's what he says there in verse 19, raised on the third day. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says that he was delivered up on account of our transgressions because of our sin. And he was raised again in order to bring about our justification. So without the resurrection, there is no completion to the redemptive plan of God. So he's delivered to pay the debt that we owe. He was raised again to prove that if we're united with him by faith, then we have victory over sin and its consequence, which is death. That's the completion of it. That's the victory of it. That everyone who believes in him would never have to die. And not in the end, but now. I mean, again, I'm going to stress this. Eternal life begins the moment we trust Christ. It's not a tack-on. It's not like an add-on at the end of life as we know it. It begins now, the moment we put our faith or our trust in Christ. But notice the response of the, of the apostles to what Jesus is telling them. In Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 34, uh, the apostles are told, or the apostles basically say uh, they didn't get it. The Bible says they, they didn't get it. In fact, it says they were imperfect. They, they understood nothing. They were clueless. They were impervious to the reality that the firstborn of creation would become the last 
which is what the humiliation of the cross indicates, right? It's the, the, the worst form of crucifixion. Only the worst criminals die there. So the first of all creation became the last of all humanity so that the last, those of us who are apart from God, would become the first. We could become members of God's kingdom. But instead of accepting Jesus' passion or adopting his practice you know, of humility, the disciples arrogantly fought for top spot with Jesus, okay? Selfish ambition. And this is the toxic nature of proud ambition within God's family that highlights our need to pursue humility, which is what we learn next from the heir of the disciples in verses 20 through 24. And there are two facts that highlight the heir from which we learn. First of all, we see the request for preferential treatment in verses 20 and 21. Immediately after Jesus announces, now you've got to follow the, the, the scene here. Jesus has just announced, I'm going to go die. Oh, and John's, John, James and John's mom comes with the boys and says, oh, hey, hey we, we, we want to ask you something. Seriously? Just going to die. And now you want what? So the text says that uh, he, he had just announced it. And his closest disciples, two of his closest ones, these, these are the guys who are with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Peter, James, and John. These are among the inner circle. And they came to enact their selfish plan. And so with false humility, I think it's false humility, it says in verse 20, then the mother of uh, the sons of Zebedee came with, came to him with her sons. Now, so they're all coming, bowing down, false sense of humility, hoping to endear Jesus to their perverted request, thinking that he'll somehow be impressed by their, their humility. And they bowed down and they uttered a bold request. Notice it says in verse 20, making a request of him. What was the request? Now, don't jump ahead and say, we want one sit on the right one. They came with a request. Mark 10, 35 gives us a hint of what this request might be. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You see the bait and switch here? It's kind of like if you're a parent, your child comes up and says, oh, hey, dad, um, I want to go somewhere. Would that be okay? I want to buy something. Is that all right? Well, uh, you know, what are we going to say? Oh, sure. No. No, follow what Jesus says in, in verse, verse 20. And he said, what do you wish? I'm not making some blanket statement. I'm not giving you carte blanche here. You know, here's my credit card. Go buy something. No. Will you do with us, for us, whatever we ask? Uh, no. What do you want? And so James and John said, we want to sit, the mother said, we want to sit one on, but see, their mom is just the vicarious person through which James and John are asking. We want to sit one on the right. This is my right. One on the right, one on the left. Okay. That's what they're asking. What had the apostles been promised in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28? That each one of them would sit on a throne, ruling over in the kingdom. James and John didn't want just the, just the privilege that all of the other apostles had been granted. No, they wanted prominence. And, you know, they wanted to be first. Well, actually, they wanted to be second and third. Okay, Jesus first, and they wanted to be second and third. We just want to be a top-tier uh, rulers in the kingdom, is, is what they're asking. Now, think about this. Their, their request, on one hand, is really distorted. But on, a, on a one hand, it's actually commendable. Because they're actually acknowledging the reality of the kingdom. They're acknowledging that there is this kingdom and it's coming and we want to be a part of it. But it's also insightful because what we see, I think, here, and as I was doing some reading, this came, to, uh, you know, 
one of the commentators said this, and I thought, well, I hadn't really thought about that before, said that, that genuine faith can really coexist. And these are my words, but genuine faith can really coexist with gruesome fault in a believer. Now, listen, genuine faith, they believe that the kingdom was coming, along with gruesome fault, we want to be second and third. How does that happen? As believers, it's possible for us to have genuine faith in God and yet still be perverted in some of the desires and ways in which we live because we're fallen and reveals the, the, continue, the need for continual purging in our heart, as the, psalm, or the songwriter says, that's prone to wonder. Our hearts are prone to wonder. And so it's possible for us to have great faith in God and do great things for God and still on the, on the side we're kind of like all messed up. Do you understand that as we grow in our Christian faith, we're always being made aware of the things that we're falling short of living in Christ's likeness, that, that he is revealing these things to us and sometimes he reveals them, we forget about it and then he comes back to it. But this is, the pers- this is what God does for us in our lives. Their selfish ambition stands in stark contrast to Christ's sacrificial service. I'm going to go up, suffer, and die, and rise again. Oh, hey, by the way, uh, can we be number uh, you know, two and three here? Seriously. I mean, if your grandpa says your grandpa's going to die, the, the first question out of your mouth is, well, how much am I going to get in the inheritance? I mean, we, we hurry up now. I'm, I'm kind of waiting. They didn't understand. This is the third time Jesus has said this. But they were so steeped in the Old Testament perspective of who the Messiah was that they didn't listen to the Messiah say what he was about at the time. He said, there's no good time. How insensitive to Jesus. How insulting to the brethren. How inconsistent with Christ-likeness is our clamoring to be noticed are clamoring to be first, are clamoring to be recognized, are clamoring to be prominent. When our Lord came and died so that we could even be in the kingdom of God. And apart from Him, we would be toast. How audacious. How presumptuous. How perverted. For the children of God to claim our right for being special in the kingdom. There's no good time for self-promotion, especially in light of Christ's passion. I was actually just reading this this morning in Jeremiah 36 and then Jeremiah 45. The, the, the uh, Baruch had been commissioned by Jeremiah to write down everything that Jeremiah had said. And then the, the, the king, Jehoiakim, burned everything that Jeremiah had said. And then he said, okay, well, we'll just go back and do it again. And so he wrote it again. And to Baruch, these, these words are written. But as for you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. As for you, as for me, are we seeking great things for ourselves because of God's favor towards us? Do not seek them. That's greatness in the kingdom. The way of Jesus, who was not seeking great things for himself, but seeking to go to the cross. Then we see Jesus' response in verses 22 through 24. And I want you to look at verse 22, because, but Jesus answered and said, you, this is a plural. Jesus is not addressing mama. He's addressing James and John. Because that's where the request really came from. And we see it again at the end where it says, they said to him. Who's they? Not the mom. James and John. So this is a rebuke to James and John. And we, the, the response shows their error in two ways. First way, first way, or two counts. First of all, ignorance. You do not know what you're asking for. They didn't understand, I don't think, the seriousness of their request or the inappropriateness of their request. Little kids, they watch TV and they see a commercial 
advertising Disney World. And they run up to dad and mom, let's go to Disney World, let's go to Disney World. And they have no clue how much it costs to go to Disney World. I mean, we're not talking about just getting there. I mean, that's the cheap part. When you walk up and you pay the price to get in, that's where the sticker shock comes. You know, I mean, Allegiant has cheap flights, you know. <laughs> you know, you can get everybody there cheaper than you can get everybody in once you get there. They have no clues to price. And Jesus says to his apostles, he says, do you have a clue how much this is going to cost? Now, that's my paraphrase, okay? They were ignorant of the price because Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? Verse 22. The cup refers to his upcoming suffering. It refers to his death on the cross. Are you able to pay that price? He says to these apostles. In John chapter 18, <clears throat> verse 11, Jesus said, so Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Am I not to drink it? The cup of suffering, the cup of death. Am I not to drink it? Yes, you are. So James and John, are you able to drink this cup? To drink it means to tap it out. It means to go to the end. It means to finish it off. It doesn't just mean to take a sip. Are they able to fully embrace the bitter gall of suffering? and humiliation, and death as followers of Jesus. Now, I don't know whether it was just ignorance or just, uh, you know, kind of blind conceit, but they go, yeah, we can. We're able. Now, and I'm not, I don't want to be totally disparaging to them. I think maybe they thought, yeah, we, we can. We can embrace this. Notice Jesus' response, <clears throat> verse 23. And Jesus said, my cup you shall drink with compassion and with certainty. He says, yep, uh, you really will. And this is what we find. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we find out that James was martyred for his faith. And in Revelation chapter 1, we find that John was relegated to the island of Patmos in total isolation. He suffered. They both suffered. And in fact, if you look at the text of Colossians chapter 1, all of us are filling up the sufferings of Christ. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus, we're all going to suffer. But I would contend to you that none of us, none of them, none of us, suffers as unjustly or as fully as Jesus did. Again, none of us are sinless, and none of us as sinless ever die for those who are sinners. And Jesus fully drank the cup. We look around at, at, at believers that may have more uh, prestige and prominence and recognition and influence. And sometimes we say, yeah, I, I, I would like to be like them. I remember as a college student, you know, going to uh, conferences and I thought, you'd have these big time speakers come in, you know, and think, oh yeah, that'd be cool. I would like to do that, you know. Well, Why? Well, mostly not for good reasons, you know, mostly because, uh, you know, I wanted to be thought well of. I remember being at a conference one time, listening to Elizabeth Elliot, uh, wife of Jim Elliot, who lost his life in, uh, in the 50s in uh, Ecuador, the Aqua Indians uh, murdered him, and, or martyred, he was a martyr for his faith. And I remember Elizabeth Elliot sharing, and then she shared the story. She says, yeah, I oftentimes I have young women come up to me, and they say, oh, Miss Elliot, I, I want to know God just like you do. Well, Jim Elliot wasn't the only husband she lost. She got married again, and, and that husband died, and then she was married for a third time. And she would say to these, she said, I, I said to this, these young ladies, I say, I'm not sure you want to go through the pain that I've gone through to know God as well as I know him. I think Jesus was saying to the disciples, you don't really know. You're never going to know what it's like to be the holy, righteous son of God, to be, have his father turn his back on him. You're never going to know what it's like to bear the weight of the sins of the world on your back. 
They were ignorant of the price, but they were ignorant of the protocol. And Jesus says in verse 23, basically, hey, it's not my spot to give them out. You know, it's not, it's not my prerogative. The Father hasn't given me the responsibility of delegating who's second and third, who's on my right and who's on my left. That's not my mind to give. And so their presumption and seeking favoritism soon morphs into this arrogant desire for supremacy because the sovereign God who sits over the universe is the one who's, who's handing out those spots. <laughs> it's not yours to request, it's God's to give. So be careful what you're asking for. So we see their ignorance, but we also see arrogance. And not just arrogance on the part of James and John, but if you look at verse 24, I think it's arrogance on the part of all the apostles because the other boys, now they're ticked off that James and John got there first. That's my take on it, okay? The other disciples were indignant. And I don't think they were indignant out of their righteousness. I think they were indignant out of their jealousy. And I say this not just trying to pull things out of the sky. But if we went back, which we're not going to, to Matthew chapter 9, verses 33 through 36, we'd see that all of the disciples were involved in a kind of a debate about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. And then when we look at the rebuke that Jesus gives in verse 25, we see that Jesus doesn't just address James and John, he addresses all of them. He's talking to everyone here. When I was a young boy, I have an older sister and younger sister, and we'd get ready to go somewhere in the car with my mom or with my dad, not as a family, but just, you know, we're going somewhere with dad or we're going somewhere with mom. And my sister would invariably say, I'm riding shotgun. Now, for those of you who don't know, that means they get to sit up front with the parent and the other person gets to sit in the back like a second-rate citizen. Used to make me so mad. And I wasn't mad because I was righteous. I was mad because she asked first, you know, because if I could have, I'd have got there first, you know. Jesus is saying, look, this selfish ambition, this jealousy in the kingdom of God, it's toxic. It is not kingdom stuff. It is worldly stuff. James has something to say about it. And in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, we read these words. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Where do you want to be first? Where are you tempted to want to be first? in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. Yeah, when I pull into that parking lot, I'm going to get there first. Because if I get there first, then guess what? I get to pick the closest spot to the door. I can park right up front. I want to get in the sanctuary because I like this seat right here, you know, where I sit. Whether it's usually towards the back, so you can exit real quickly. You know, when we have a potluck, I don't like cold food, you know. I really don't want to go in after everybody's picked over it. So I'm kind of, just kind of, you know, I'm just happy to talk, talk to somebody right at the front of the line. Oops, I guess I got to go, you know. Somebody's got to leave. I want to be the person that they asked to serve on this board or committee because I really have a thing or two that I could contribute, you know? I mean, I'm really, I really know about these things. When it comes to facility things, they really should talk to me because I, you know, I, really, I know a thing or two. And, you know, this ministry that I'm involved in, I'm really the best person for it. You know, because I, I have so much experience and wisdom and God's really used me in the past. And so we cling to these things and we hold on to these things and we, or we're tempted to. Okay, I'm not saying we do, but we're tempted to these things. Isn't it interesting that most of us as believers, we'd say, oh yeah, we have to be servants in the kingdom of God. And we're really down with that until somebody treats us like one. Think about that. You're okay with servant 
servanthood and being a servant until you get treated like one. Until you're standing there and someone says, hey, would you pick up those chairs and, and put them away? Who, me? Like, I'm important here. Why would you ask me to do that? This past week, I'm, I come into work, I'm going to be preaching on servanthood. You know. It's like, people calling me on the phone saying, where, where, where's the remote thing for the, the clicker for the, 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 you know, the screen up here? Oh, you know, could you, could you move some chairs and pick up me? Seriously. And I find myself, like, I'm walking around looking for stuff. I mean, the people ask me, I'm walking around all over the building. I have no clue where this stuff is. I'm opening doors and cupboards and cabinets looking for stuff, and I'm going, why am I doing this? Or do we say, sure. If that will help the kingdom, I'm good with that. You see, God strikes at the heart of our pride when he says the Lord Jesus came and he died so that you could live. What are you going to do that's greater than what he's done for you or me? And we learn, we learn finally from the exhortation to the disciples. I think Jesus was rather disturbed by what he had witnessed and he huddled the disciples again in the consultation room for another come to Jesus meeting and he said to them, I'm going to share with you what the secret to greatness in the kingdom is and I'm going to share it with you by giving you a negative and a positive, what it is not and what it is, what we are to shun and what we are to seek. First of all, what we are to shun. In verse 25 he says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercised authority. This is the way of the world. <laughs> you know, you got to be demeaning. you got to be demanding. You have to be domineering if you're going to be a ruler in this world. If you're going to lord it over people. If you're going to exercise authority and this happens inside and outside the church you think what's going on in china with the uyghur people is not exactly what the world says is greatness xi jinping is sending them to re-education camps yeah this happens outside the church it happens at tyrants control for their own benefit acton's anthem is true power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and it's the way of the world greatness in the world is to gain prominence and influence and power and to use it for your own benefit and authority that's what jesus is not so among you not supposed to be the way among god's people the world's way is not god's way self-exaltation and tyrannical and abusive people of power have no place in the kingdom. I like what Lenski says in his commentary that great men are not sitting on top of lesser men but bearing lesser men on their backs. We're carrying them on our backs. So I ask you this morning, do we run to or do we shun prestige and prominence and power and influence manipulating and controlling to get what we want. That's what we're to shun. What are we to seek? Jesus says, to be great, you must be a servant. This is the general term for servant, which is a diakonos. It's to, to serve, to care for people, okay? And these are obedient disciples, willing to serve people. Is that, can that be used to describe us, that we're willing to serve people? I want to be used by God. Greatness to God means minimizing self and serving others. That's what it means. Minimizing ourself and serving other people. And then he said, uh, so here it is. To be first in the kingdom, we had to be last in the world. Because if we're last in the world, then we'll be first in the kingdom. First in recognition and value and importance to God. But not just to be a servant. There's synonymous parallelism in verse 25. It's, we seek to be, first we must be the servant of all. But then he says, you must be, to be great, you must be the slave of all. Whoa. This is doulos. This is the household servant. This is the one who has no rights. This is the one who serves other people and does exactly what the master says, regardless, because you have no life apart from yourself. You know, I've been thinking about that. I think, how did you? 
That, that's, that's the big ask. You know, I, I have to do this for, for the Lord. Slaves have no rights. They live for themselves, doing only what the master says. Douglas Hare put it this way. The only valid ambition is the aspiration to serve. That's what I want to do. I get up in the morning and I want to serve. Or be served. This is what God calls us to. Serving others is a personal choice. To meet their needs. To care about their wants and their desires. And I do this by praying for people. By giving money for God's work. Putting money in there for the missionaries. That's the way we serve them. Putting money through the ministry of the church. That's the way we serve in the body of Christ. Listening to people. Sharing for people. Praying for people when you're outside of the church. And people don't even know that you're praying for them. It's the way we serve people. It's picking up the chairs after the first service. And putting them away for the second service. It's coming in and and early on Sunday morning and preparing to lead the service in worship. It's any number of things that we can do to serve the kingdom and serve God's people in the kingdom. So am I lording it over or am I serving in my household, in the family of God? Do I serve my spouse? Do I just boss her around? I serve my kids or just tell them what they're doing wrong? Do I serve my parents or just bellyache because, oh, they've got to be the worst parents in the world. They wouldn't ask me to do this. This is what God calls us to. The ultimate irony is Jesus said that, that the servant life that we are to seek is the servant life that we have been shown. This is Matt, verse 28. Just as, notice that, just as, this is it. This is the example. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The one who ultimately came, I mean, Son of Man, again, same term here, Son of Man came, he's supposed to be the one who reigns eternally, but he came to serve. He's the one who's supposed to live and rule eternally, but he came to die. So just as the one who was Supreme came to serve and die, so you and I are called to serve and die. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How did he serve? No, go back to verse 17 and 19. By dying on the cross. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. To be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Isaiah 53 filled out and fulfilled. We don't tell Jesus what to do. He's our servant, but we don't tell him what to do. He died for us and moment by moment, day by day, he enables and empowers our obedience to him. Jesus came from glory to serve, not to be served. And his true followers, how can we do anything else? We descend to greatness because the Lord came down to serve us. That's what we do. Service is costly. He gave his life. And he gave his life not just as an example, but as a ransom. And I said it's a ransom for many. A ransom is the price of release. The price paid to release us from slavery. Slavery to sin and the consequence of that sin is death. He came to deliver us from it. And I'm going with Calvin here. Calvin says he believes that the many is not a fixed number, but embraces the whole human race. You might be surprised if you think about what I just said, given what you might know about what some Calvinists teach. But Calvin himself believed that the many here is not a fixed number, but includes the entire human race. So that we're all slaves to sin, and Jesus' death in our place paid the ransom that's sufficient for all, but is efficient and effective only for those who trust in Christ. So in that sense, redemption is for the many, because only the many are the ones who receive Christ, but it's sufficient for all. See, Christ's passion paints, points is a model 
our practice, but it's a means of our salvation. So I don't know, you've been listening to this, if you're here, you're listening online, you know, whatever, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the real issue, you might be cringing like, oh, I don't like this, you know, opposite of the world thing where I'm supposed to serve rather than be served. Well, that's really not the point for you. The point for you is what are you going to do with Jesus? <laughs> you got you to decide about this death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of Jesus if you're going to ex- embrace it and accept it as what he did for you because we don't, Jesus doesn't need us, we need him. He, he doesn't need us, but he came to die for us. And so my challenge for you is to, to recognize that you need Jesus and to put your faith, your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross as the payment for your sins so that you can be brought into the kingdom of God. Then you can start being concerned about serving, because, but you have to be willing to submit to the king before you're ready to serve. And those of us who know Christ, uh, you've listened to the sermon. God calls us to serve because of what Christ has done. And so when we break this bread and we, we take this cup, what's really interesting to me is, is that Christ modeled humble service and sacrifice that made possible our salvation by dying, which is what we remember when we take the elements. His sacrifice and his service for us is what we remember when we take the elements. And so now we're called to think about that, to reflect upon that, and to rejoice in that. And then to receive those elements and then respond. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And may we serve as our Savior did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenge of this text. I pray that as we spend a few moments reflecting and then rejoicing and then receiving these elements that you would move each and every believer here to respond by finding ways we can serve you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our example. He is our King. Uh, But he was not a king who came to rule and to lord it over us. Um, He came as a servant. He came to seek and to serve and and to save those who were lost. And he paid the ultimate price when he laid down his life on our behalf. Father, we just pray that as we uh, take an opportunity to give back to you um, through the offering and through uh, just the many ways that you have given us to serve you, that we would do that with joyful hearts, that we would do it with servant hearts, uh, always remembering uh, what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.